Uh, I cannot promise we're going to hit, dive down deep into all of those, that text this morning, but what I do want to do is hit four sections uh, throughout as we go through this passage. And uh, before I do that, I want to zoom out a little bit uh, to the creation narrative towards the beginning, just because the fact that God has always given his people uh, a vision to see and to pursue. And so think back to Genesis just for a second of how when God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, he gave them a, a three-part vision. And he says that I want you to, to have lots of babies, right? Multiply. Uh, care for my creation and go out into all the world and take dominion of the earth. This was the great grand vision that we got as humans from God. And then not long after, thinking back to the fall, what happens is there's this rejection of God's good design and there's a disobedience to the vision that God gives. And as a result of that, there's what's called the fall. And that fall is that sense of brokenness and depravity that we all feel and know, right? It's that sense that like even this past week, I tried to live up to my own standard and failed, let alone living up to God's standard. It's that sense that I know that there's something in me that's not right. It's their senses uh, that there's something about the world that's broken. And so yet, Adam and Eve are in this place where they've fallen, but God doesn't leave them there. He casts another restorative vision for them to see and to pursue. He even says there's a Messiah who would one day come and he would defeat death, defeat Satan, and restore human dignity to our, to our people. Now, so keep that in mind that God gives a restorative vision. Now, fast forward to Zechariah 7. That's not this chapter. That's last week. Now, in Zechariah 7, we saw the unfolding of depravity. That depravity usually results in one of two ways. On one side, depravity looks like religion. Or we saw in last week's uh, passage that they were offering these empty fasts to God, trying to get him to uh, be pleased with them, right, by this empty religious activity that didn't mean anything. And then in another portion of last week, there was a sense where the, their hearts were diamond hard against him. So they were rebellious. So on one side, their, their religion is causing them to be self-righteous. And on the other side, their rebellion is causing them to be self-serving. And so in this passage, in chapter 8, what we see here is that God steps in with a different kind of answer to depravity. He says there's a, there's a third way, if you would. There's a restored way that we could step into his presence, not by religion and not by rebellion, but by his restorative grace, casting a new vision for his people to see and to pursue. And so that's, that's where we're going to step into chapter 8. Now, we're going to look at four sections, and it's going to be that grace restores. That's where it begins, and that restoration leads to transformation, that God transforms his people. And after that, we're going to see that that transformation leads to rejoicing, that God gives us a grace that rejoices in all circumstances. And as a result of all of that, at the end, what we're going to see is there's a grace that then attracts, that God's grace attracts all of the world, all the dark places of the world to himself through us as God's people. So that's the agenda for this morning. And let me go ahead and pray and then we'll dive into some of these sections. God, we do lay before you uh, just our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you would awaken and open us to your word, Lord, that it would sink in down deep, God, and that as we look to your word this morning, that we would behold the glory that you've laid before us in these passages. And God, you would change us and transform us into your image, that we would not leave here the same as we came in. We ask for your power to do this by the Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, and amen. Okay, let's jump to verse 3, 
and we'll go just three to five, those two verses here to begin. This is the point that grace restores. It says, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And now, let me pause for a second. That phrase we're going to see about 14 times, all right, throughout uh, chapter 8. And that Lord of hosts really means God of all armies, God of all warriors. He's the unstoppable God, if you've heard that song. God of angel armies, if you like the Chris Tomlin version. So think of that when you see this phrase, thus says the Lord of hosts. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. And so the backdrop here of what's happening in Jerusalem is that the city's not doing well, right? The rebuilding just happened. There was that two-year break, and the rebuilding, it's not done yet. Uh, the city's not in good shape. There's still wreckage in the city. The, the walls are not built up. The temple's not built up. So what they're looking at with their physical eyes is not this, right? They're seeing something that looks broken beyond repair. It's not, not a good-looking city. It's not a safe city. It's not going to be highly rated on your neighborly.com. All right, this is, this is a, a, a place that's it's broken. And they're wondering why, why is God going to do anything about it? Um, they're actually discouraged at the same time because people from Babylon hadn't been coming back to Jerusalem in the droves that they were expecting them to return it. And so there's just a lot of discouragement happening right here. And it feels like it's broken beyond repair. Now, what God says is he's going to return. He has returned in verse 3, and will dwell, so his presence will go forward. He's not going to restore Jerusalem because uh, their religious activity. He's not rewarding that. He's, he's not going to restore Jerusalem, uh, and it's, not, it's, it's in spite of their rebellion. Like, they just had rebellious hearts, so he's not doing it because of those reasons. He's doing it because his grace and his presence goes forward, and we see that he calls the city a faithful city. So where his presence goes, there will be faithfulness. And then he calls the mountain a holy mountain. So that when, wherever his presence goes, there will be holiness. We know this about God himself. And then he paints this awesome picture of, of families playing together, multi-generational uh, grandparents and grandchildren playing together in the streets. I don't know, I guess they didn't have cars in Jerusalem. I don't know what that's about. But uh, they were playing in the streets, and it was fun, and it was safe. And this is a picture, a restorative picture of what they couldn't see with their physical eyes, but through the grace of God, they could see restored. I know many of you probably have seen the show, Fixer Rubber. Okay, there's some, there's some movement. All right, there we go. Now, um, if you haven't seen it, what happens is Chip and Joanna Gaines live in Waco, right? And they go find a home buyer. They partner with a home buyer, and they go find a home to fix up. And the homes, the homes that they try and fix up are busted. They look broken beyond repair, right? Uh, you look at the home on the outside. They're leaning over to the side. It looks like a ghost or some witches lived there for 60 years. Just not attractive at all. Then you go on the inside of these homes, and, and it's completely busted. The, the, homes are, the walls are up in the wrong spots. The, the foundation's all messed up. you got that green 70s shag carpet in these houses. 
and that disco wallpaper, and you just, you go in there and you think there's no hope for this house. There's no way. But Joanna, who's there, she's the visionary, right? Uh, Chip is off doing whatever, kicking butterflies. She's the visionary that casts a new vision over the home and says, we can tear down these walls here. We can make space in the kitchen to where we can play and have a good time. We can do a multi-generational situation in the back so we can have the grandparents and the kids playing in the backyard. And she casts a vision over this home that looks broken so that the home buyers, they buy in, they want it. They see it and they want to go out because they can see and pursue this vision that she casts by her presence. So in the same way, the people of God are seeing a restorative vision over Jerusalem that would not be accomplished by their effort, but strictly because his presence in the city. And now many of us can relate to that feeling of, of brokenness beyond repair. Right? There's cities of ours that we feel like maybe broken or our country broken beyond repair. We wonder, can God's presence come in and restore this place? For many of us, it's even our homes that we have uh, relationships with our, our parents or our, our kids, our, our daughters, our stepdaughters, our half-daughters, and we ask, man, I, this, this relationship, this family dynamic feels broken. Like I just keep having the same argument with my wife over and over and over. But the same thing, that one line item on the budget, groceries, every week. And you wonder, are we broken beyond repair? For some of us, it's actually that personal sense that we feel and think that we are ourselves broken beyond repair. A 16-year-old girl recently that I know said that because of what happened to her and her childhood, that she believed that she was never going to be okay, that she had no hope. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if that's where you feel like you are, if you're in that space, be encouraged. And here's why. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near. He's present. His presence is there to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. When we are feeling broken and crushed, it's his presence that goes before us to save us. And so here the people of God are being restored by the presence of God. Isn't that good? And so what, what happens next is that they, they don't stop with restoration. They become transformed people of God. So his restoration leads to transformation. Let's jump down to verse 7 and do 7 and 8 together. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. He dwells there, now they dwell there. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And so we're going to see this pattern throughout this passage where God's heart is always for the nations. Uh, he, he wants to come in and restore Jerusalem, but we're going to see that he doesn't just care about Jerusalem. He cares about his people all over the world. He says from the east country to the west country. And that's not a literal east and a literal west. It's, it's, it means all across the globe from the east to the west. And God's, as God saves these people, he brings salvation to their lives. He dwells with them. They dwell with him. What happens is he renews that covenantal faithfulness. As he says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. So he establishes their identity in him. It's so important. And what happens as a result of their identity being in God is they see transformation. It goes on to say that 
that will be in faithfulness and righteousness. And there's several verses that follow that kind of display what that transformation looks like. But I want to pause there because it's so important that I say that God's salvation itself promises identity transformation. God's salvation promises identity transformation. All right, so no matter what cultural drip um, that we get throughout the week, whether it's through um, media, social media scrolling, we get our cultural influence that way, or if it's at school with the teachers and the students and the, and, uh, and the classmates, or if it's at work and we're getting our, our influence through the, uh, the colleagues at work, or if it's um, on the news and we just watch the news in the morning and the evening and that's where we kind of get our drip of the culture. However it's coming in, what we're being told right now The mainstream narrative is that if you want identity and transformation and salvation, what you must do is look within and find out who you are. And you define who you are. And once you define who you are, you express yourself authentically and you be you, sis, and you go transform yourself. You can do that. Now, the challenge is, well, let's go to Trevor Wax. Trevor Wax wrote a book. And it's called Rethink Yourself. I'm going to go into this a little bit. He, he says that there's a cultural view of this identity transformation. And then there's a biblical view of identity transformation. The cultural view is this. Like I was saying, first what we do to have identity transformation in the culture is look within. Look within yourself and you define your impulses and your desires. And then once you've looked within yourself... Then you look around to other people, and other people can uh, uh, encourage you and affirm you, and they can build you up, and you can identify yourself with them and express yourself. But if they disagree with you, your desires and impulses, then you're going to shame them, right? And once you've done that, you've defined yourself, you've found your crowd that will affirm you, then you're going to look up, and you're going to find a God. You're going to try and figure out a God that agrees with those people and agrees with your desires. And what you end up with is a whole host of spirituality where you kind of pull from this, this chain over here, this over here. You got some of this faith and some of this new age, a little Buddhism, some Jesus, no church, but uh, maybe some uh, positive vibes and some CrossFit. And you put it all in a mix. <laughs> no offense to you CrossFitters, but you put it all in a mix. And what you're left with is this spiritual concoction that's supposed to give you transformation, but, but does it. The challenge with this view is that if I did not self-create myself, do I have the power to self-define myself? I don't know about you guys, but like I wasn't in the womb kind of going, all right, let me just figure this out. Let me wire myself together. Let me go, I'm going Justin Brody, you're going to be 6'1", larger frame, oversized head, and uh, go ahead and get bald by the time you're 30. Like that wasn't, I'm not self-creating myself that way, right? I would have had some hair like Brad Cardwell. Where is he at over here? He's going to have great hair until he's 80. I would have wired that in. But I didn't self-create. And so if I didn't self-create, then I can't be self-defined. And what's more crushing about this idea is that when you try and put all your hopes, desires, fears, and impulses and failures on yourself, by yourself, we end up crushed with a weight that's too large for us to bear. 
That's why we get so raged and impulse and we have so many things going on and we can't define who we are and yet the spectrum of identity continues to grow and we get more and more confused because we don't know who we are and so the spectrum grows and yet we're not figuring out anything about who we are. We're now we're more confused than we were before because the weight is too much for us to bear. If God created us, God defines us. And so the biblical view is this, that first you don't look in, first you look up to God for truth and identity. And then once you get that from him, then you look in to your desires and impulses and you align your desires with his. And then once you've done that, then you can look around, but you're, you're expressing your God-given uniqueness to community and you're gonna be a light in the, in the dark world. So if we begin by looking up and not by looking in, we'll have the strength to have a stable, fixed, and firm and steadfast identity that can have the strength to withstand the current cultural waves and impulses and raging desires that we don't know how to define. My daughter, she is six years old. Her name is Braley, and she is learning how to write. My wife in the back holding my youngest son um, has these scriptural cards, postcards that she puts over the, on the walls and the house and the doors, and um, it's really also a, a, a resource from Kathy Keller, which is New City Catechism, great resource for discipling the kids at home. But she's doing that, and so my daughter's copycatting my mom, or my, my, my wife, excuse me, sorry, honey, uh, copycatting my wife, and uh, that'll get me in trouble later. Um, um, and so she writes her own postcard. My daughter writes her own postcard. And I, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's relevant, so I wanted to share it with you guys. If you guys can look at this screen, I'm gonna put the card up. This is her writing, again, she's six. She says, we like Jesus, we are the Lorves. And just so you know, that the I and the Jesus and the V and the Lorve are actually the Hebrew translation of how you, you say those things. It's the holier way to do that. And uh, she said, we also like him. So that's her, her interpretation. But, so it's funny. But I was encouraged because that statement, we are the Lorves. Gosh, my hope and prayer is that we would bank on that as God's people, knowing that we belong to him. And our identity comes from him defining who we are first. And so we see here that God's grace is going to transform his people because he says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Grace restores, then it transforms who we are. Man, because God's so good like that. And then as, as transformed people, that leads to rejoicing. That leads to rejoicing. So I'm gonna jump down to verse 18. We'll continue in verse 18 to 19. Just a small point here on rejoicing in all circumstances. Verse 18, and the word of the Lord of the hosts, of hosts came to me saying, in verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tent shall be to the house of Judah the seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and love peace. So here what we're seeing is that God's exchanging the empty fasts from last week in chapter 7 for a fullness of joy in his presence. Now, um, this is chapter 7 began with this question last week, where they were asking God if they had to continue fasting on the fifth month. 
And God kind of responded in, in a little bit of a rebuke, right? He said, um, were you even fasting for me or were you just fasting that I would change your circumstance? And so here's, that's kind of God's rebuke from last week. This is the, the more um, answer in full, if you would, that he says, you don't just need to stop fasting for the fifth month, but you can stop fasting for all four months where you initiated these fasts for reasons I didn't ask you to. You had one fast, one fast on the Day of Atonement, not, not, not all four of these fasts, and you just initiated them because you were in trial and tribulation. There was war and captivity, and you thought that if, I would, if you'd offer this fast that I'd change your circumstance for you. But what they end up doing is they end up offering what's called a solemn oath, or I'm calling it that, a solemn oath. A solemn oath, for example, is any time God's people, or anyone, says, God, if... I, God, I will do this if you will change my circumstance. I will do this if you change my circumstance. For example, God, I will fast if you get us out of this tribulation, what they were saying last week. Or, God, I will never, ever speed again if you get me out of this ticket, right? Or, God, I, I, I will never drink again if you just get me out of this DWI. Or God, I, I will be a generous, charitable person. I will be generous with my money if you just get me out of the financial debt. If you just change my financial situation, then I'll be a generous and giving person. But do any of those questions have anything, anything to do with God's heart or are they just looking for God's hand? Three years ago, not three anymore, uh, Several years ago, uh, my wife and I were in a season like, like that. Uh, I was running, I was in business at the time. Business was growing for me. And as a result of the revenue increasing, my generosity decreased. It was not a good season for me. And God wouldn't let that spirit continue uh, for very long. And so sure enough, things went the other way quickly. And it was during that season, uh, I remember saying to God, God, if you just restore the revenue, like, I'll be generous. I'll give you the money. I'll be kind and, and charitable like I should be. If you just rest- bring back the money, bring back the revenue, restore the business. What do you think you said of that? No, did not respond the way I wanted it to. It got worse. Situation got way worse. My wife and I ended up in a, uh, a, a financial class very similar to Crown Financial, a shameless plug for that, for a great financial resource for us, but we ended up in something like that, and what we learned during that season was God wasn't trying to change my circumstance. He was trying to change my heart, and once I realized that his heart was better than any trial, and that his word says to rejoice in all circumstances, even tribulations, count them, all, count them as joy, then it became about him, and not about how he changed the things around me, and I became a generous person, but I cared less about the circumstance, because I cared all about I get more about him. John Piper says this way. He asks a question. He says, what is the deepest root of your joy? What God gives to you or what God is to you? Is the deepest root of my joy in how God changes and arranges my life, gives me what I want, puts me in the right situations, opens up the right doors, or is my greatest joy in the fullness of his presence? Despite any circumstance, trial or tribulation. 
So here we see a grace that leads us to rejoicing. Now as we rejoice and celebrate as God's people in all circumstances, that leads to, to an attractiveness in us that God uses us to reach the entire world and he uses us to attract the lost world to himself. Let's jump down to verse 21 through 23. Grace attracts. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts, the unstoppable God. I myself am going. Many people in strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days 10 men, not literal, figurative, or many, from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you. We see something in you, we want to go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. And so the people of God are now drawn to, are, are now being a light for the unbelievers. And the unbelievers all across the nations are seeing something so enormously attractive in believers that they want to go with. Notice the conversational elements in this passage. Notice the, the reputation that's there. For we have heard that God's with you. There's a reputation that goes before them. That they are so, there's something about them that's so attractive that they want to go and find this out for themselves. Now, we can see, again, like I said earlier, God's heart over all of Scripture to reach into the dark places of the world and that he would use us to attract all the nations. So I want to rewind one more time, zoom out and go back to Genesis. And in Genesis 12, God's talking to Abraham and he establishes his covenant with him. He says, I will save you for the sake of the nations. Three chapters later in Genesis 15, God and Abraham are having a conversation and they're looking up at the stars and, and this is how this goes. He says in Genesis 15, 5, that God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them, and so shall your offspring be. And so is he being literal that, that, that Abraham can count the stars? Uh, don't think he has a calculator. Don't think he can actually do it. There are 20 billion trillion stars in the sky, so that wasn't literal. But the point was that Abraham would be used by God to be a light to all the nations in dark places. So many, so many people across the world that you could not even number them. It wasn't possible. And so to build on this illustration, and what we're seeing here in this text with the people being attracted, there's conversation, there's reputation, there being a light, there being an attraction. Um, I want to build on that analogy and put up a screen, if we could, about the stars. And so a little bit about me, I'm a stargazer. Don't know why, that's just where I connect with the Lord. Some people love to get in the mountains and go to the beach, and, and who knows all the ways we do that, but for me, uh, it's looking at the stars. That's where I get lost. And so often, when I'll look up, what I'll see is a cluster. This is a star cluster here in the center. Now, a star cluster is where all the light has come to attract in one place. All the light is gathered into one circle, if you would. So believers, as we gather as the body of Christ, 
as the church or the gathered church, all of our light comes together and it's very attractive, right? The body of Christ is attractive. But as we leave here, we become the scattered church and we go out into the world and we become that solo star in the places and lanes that God's put us in, in our culture, in our community, in our schools, with our colleagues. Or we become this star over here to the left. And I'll tell you the truth, sometimes I'm more drawn to stare at that star that's all by itself in the corner than even the cluster. Because it's just twinkling in the night and it's so beaming of, of light when darkness is all around it. And so in this same way, I think this is the picture God's giving Abraham. This is the picture we're seeing in Zechariah that God's using his people to be lights in a dark place. This is our purpose. And one minute here to the students is I know uh, coming up soon, Launchbox is going down and yeah, international refugees coming from all over the world, all over the nations to come be with you and you get a chance for them to see and look into your life and for them to be attracted to God through you. You get a chance to be the light in a dark place for them. But this is what we're called to and, and I want to reemphasize that what we see here is a very relational evangelism. It's very relational and personal. And I'm a fan of those times whenever we share social media posts. I think they're great. Right? I think social media is uh, kind of a Roman road, modern Roman road for us today. I think that uh, debates, for example, with people about the existence of God and having a, a Christian faith in the center of the marketplace of ideas is a, is a great thing to do. I also think that going and having conversations with random people at the store who you just, you just, you never met them before, but somehow they, they lead to spiritual things and you want to follow up on that. And that's a great exercise for us to do. But the number one way that people come to faith in Christ today is through a relationship with a believer and an unbeliever. Whereby within that relationship, usually within a friend or a family member, they see something attractive enough in them that they want to see and they trust enough what that's all about. So I think that's what God's calling us into, that we would have an attractiveness to us, that we would attract the unbelievers across the spaces that we're in, and that God would use us to do that. So we see here a grace that attracts. I know that's kind of skimming through the surface of a big, giant chapter, but what we see is these four things, that God's restoring his people, he's transforming his people, he's causing them to rejoice in all circumstances, and that is extremely attractive to the lost nations of the world. So let me close and um, just remind us this morning how great it is that God's always given us a vision to see and to pursue, right? Abraham had one, Adam and Eve had one, Zechariah got one here. Jesus today is the clearest vision that we have of who God is today. And what's great about this passage is if you look back for just one second, if we can look at verse 23, you've got to notice this connection where it says in verse 23, the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. Well, now we know that that Jew was a foreshadowing, it was a typology, it was a, it was a prophetic vision of the person of Jesus Christ who was the ultimate Jew, who would attract all nations to himself, whereby we would come and put our faith in him and trust him and reach out and touch his robe by faith and be healed. 
not because of our works, not because of our religion and in spite of our rebellion, but just because he gave his life for us and died in our place that we could reach out by faith and touch his robe. Fast forward one more time with me to Matthew chapter 9, verse 21. It says, and some backdrop, it's a woman who was suffering for 12 years. Talk about feeling broken beyond repair. And she's in, uh, in the street and she sees Jesus walking by and she says to herself, if only I touch his robe, the Jew with the robe, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. Notice the affection he's got for this girl. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. And so maybe we're here today and we've never reached out by faith to touch the robe. Why was she worthy to touch his robe? It wasn't because of her religion. And it was in spite of her resume of rebellion. It was because Jesus paid the price, lived the life she could not live, and died in her place that she, all she had to do was reach out and touch the robe. And what's great about a robe is anyone can reach and touch. A child can reach. A grandparent can reach. A student can reach. Anyone can but simply reach out and touch the robe of Jesus by faith. And for those of us that are walking with him, following him, we know that he always gives us a clear vision of where we're going. Despite how broken it may feel right now and, and circumstances may not be good and we may be really confused about who we are and how we fit in with culture and what we're gonna do about all that, but we know what's coming in our future. As it says in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, <clears throat> after this I looked and behold, a great multitude, that key, no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So when you touch his robe, you get a white robe in exchange. It's a good deal. With palm branches in their hands, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb on the throne. Praise God that today he gives us a wonderful vision like that that we can see and pursue. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that um, despite our, our religious attempts, despite our rebellion in the past, despite our broken resumes, God, that you just see us and you love us so much that you would send your son to die for us. Lord, that we are so removed, we are so broken, we are so depraved that you had to die in our place, but we are so loved and so desired that you were glad to die in our place. So, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We hope that we're encouraged, God, that we are transformed, that we're rejoicing this week in any circumstance, and that, God, we are attracting all the world to you and that you would use us to do that. And we thank you for that. We pray by your power and in the name of Jesus. Amen.